I'm just so overjoyed these days when I do find a paper where things are open and I get you know, increasingly irritated when, when it's not um, because I've had the experience now of reviewing things for journals where they insist on it being available and then going back to the sort of old system where they've got a little sentence at the end saying data's available on a reasonable request or something and you think, come on, you know. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Headers from Northeastern University, and we are joined by a special guest, Dorothy Bishop, uh, who is a professor of developmental neuropsychology at the University of Oxford and a fellow of the Royal Society. Dorothy's research primarily investigates the nature and causes <laughs> of communication. <laughs> what have I said wrong? How did I say wrong? She just rolled her eyes when you said all that stuff. <laughs> Well, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Too, I'm, many, I'm, too many introductions over too, many too long a time. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly done, but, but they, thank you for joining us on the show, Dorothy. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. I want to start with the adoption of uh, open science practices. Now, this is a topic that we regularly cover on the show, and one of the most common questions we get from listeners over Twitter, uh, Facebook, or email is, how do I convince my senior mentors to uh, adopt these practices? Now, as a senior figure in the field that's adopted open science practices, I want to ask, what convinced you to adopt these open science practices, and how can uh, early career researchers better convince their senior mentors? Oh, well, I can, I can answer the first bit. I'm not so sure about the second bit. Um, I mean, the first bit was really just losing confidence in a lot of the talks I went to and the papers I read um, because I was increasingly aware of p-hacking as a sort of um, thing that was an issue for many of the fields that I interact with. And um, I, I really, it goes way, way back actually to um, my very early personal research when I just realized how easy it is to get spurious results and um, so I was really happy with the idea of adopting practices that would guard against that and I was increasingly aware of the importance of doing it. I am baffled by the number of people who are senior figures who I had always you know liked their research and think they do good stuff who don't get it and I don't understand why they don't get it. Mm. Um, do you think there's a a crossover with developmental fields? Um, not as in uh, the, 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 these people are dreadful, but more uh, a lot of experimental protocols are difficult to run. It can be hard to get subjects, um, especially if you're working in clinical developmental sorts of areas. I mean, we've I've had some I had some marvelous fun trying to provision small experiments even with with uh, babies or children on the autistic spectrum uh, i wonder if there's a connection between how hard it is to get any individual data set and then the desire to kind of kick it till it works well the 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 thing that really got me wanting to um, do the open science pre-registration and stuff wasn't the the developmental stuff it was particularly ERP research it was when I started doing Ooh. doing stuff with um, so I, I spent quite a lot of time uh, trying to because I thought I, I went into it thinking well we've been trying to get kids to do auditory discrimination and uh, that's 
you know, very noisy. And I was working with auditory psychophysicists who said, well, you know, we would normally get, you know, like 5,000 trials out of somebody before we even started sort of testing them properly just to get them used to the task. And, you know, there was I with a child who after 24 trials was saying, can we stop? And so we were trying to develop really nice, <laughs> child-friendly sort of auditory assessments. Um, but uh, I then sort of thought, oh, well, if we can just measure the brain responding to sound, this is going to be so much better. So I got into ERP, which I hadn't known about before. Um, but then it really, really became clear that so many people in that field, I mean, I think a lot of them come from backgrounds in you know, more physiology, biology, engineering, and they're not taught about statistics, and they just p-hack away. Um, and my God, the opportunities for p-hacking in that field is incredible because you can, you first of all, you pick as the window of interest that you're going to examine the thing where you can see it happening. Um, and then you can pick the electrode <laughs> where you can see it happening. And then you can decide right. whether, you know, you're going. And I actually had a journal editor saying to me, well, we've looked, you know, the, the, the referees don't like your stuff, blah, blah, blah. And you have analyzed this particular electrode, but there's something clearly going on on this other electrode. Why don't you analyze that? Wow. You know, and so I'm saying, <laughs> I don't actually have a hypothesis about that electrode. Nobody else has ever found anything there, you know. But I mean, it's noisy data. Um, and, uh, so that was much, much worse than anything in developmental. I mean, in developmental, you do still get problems, but, and of course the worst problems are when you put the babies together with the ERPs. That's really fun. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a fun day at the shops. <laughs> but I mean, um, and babies and, and, you know, sort of trying to predict outcomes of babies from ERPs, I, I do worry about that literature. There's quite a lot of it. And of course, it's the holy grail to sort of get a very early measure that will give you some insights into predicting. And, you know, I, I think people do it for the best of intentions. But I, I really think unless that stuff is pre-registered, it's very hard to have confidence in it. Now, speaking yeah, of... Um, just, go on, Dan. Yeah, speaking speaking of pre-registration, I saw in your blog last October that uh, you said you would award a thousand pounds, which is about thirteen hundred US dollars, to anyone that replicated this uh, this underpowered genetic polymorphism and brain structure paper. Oh, did I? I, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any takers? Has anyone I come to claim? I have not had any takers. No, but that's that's the other area, of course, where you know you you enter the realms of you know my god i mean so of course genetics is interesting because they they got wise to the problems quite early on there's a wonderful book that i yeah. by jonathan flint and his colleagues which i use as a course text when i talk about teach genetic stuff and he does sort of psychiatric genetics and he just des he describes it absolutely what it was like in the age when every week there was a new paper describing some new genetics discovery, uh, which of course wasn't going to replicate because they were just, they had far too much stuff. And he's, he writes in a very amusing way about this and what a disaster it was. But they then sort of realized that if they didn't clean up their act, they'd be in trouble. So they started insisting that you replicated um, before something was publishable. And typically you had to do proper sensible statistics and the really, you know, sort of elite journals would want you to ha demonstrate that a gene was functional before they would publish. So you had to really hit a very high bar. 
Unfortunately, what happened is that the neuroscientists came to the late to the game at a point when anybody can send a spit sample off to a lab and get back DNA, and they don't know any of this stuff. So they they they're going back to where we were with just sort of let's look at a few SNPs and find a few correlations with a few brain areas or even ELPs, and of course you know you end up with what um, Flint I think called it a quagmire. Hmm. Nice. I'm just trying to th- think of all the the ways that you could, if you if you were saying, I've got this ERP data set, and I want to give it a good kick, and see what comes out of it. Is a if, if you're you're kind of forking paths diagram of that is real good and foresty. Yep. And that's before I bet you haven't even thought of the possibility of doing frequency domain analysis rather than time domain analysis, where you can break up your frequency. Oh, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't even got there yet. I hadn't even got to analysis. My brain's still going. Oh, what could you? Because you, you you choose you say you choose the electrode site. So you you choose it for people who don't do ERP research. You choose the place where you are making a dipolar comparison or a combination of dipoles on the outside of the head and then you choose the direction and region of interest and then you get into all of the processing steps that you could take all the averaging methods and frequency analysis so it's uh yeah it's an amazing storyboard for uh let's let's kindly call it creative science (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah so i i didn't I didn't mess much with frequency analysis in the early days, but I did work with my graduate student, Hannah Hobson. That was the first ever registered report that we did, and we did it to look at the effect, to look at a phenomenon known as mu suppression, which is all defined in terms of frequency bands. And like every paper has got a different frequency range for the frequency band. You know, there's just no, oh, there's yeah. no consensus about how you measure it, um, whether you baseline it, and all those sorts of things. What was your experience with, uh, with doing that registered report? Well, I, I've done two now, um, and I like it. I mean, it, it, but it's tough. It's really. I think the interesting thing is that it seemed, first of all, as if it was going to be um, a doddle because you just, you know, you'd say what you're going to do, and then they'd accept it, and then off you'd go and do it. And of course, it's not like that because you submit your initial um, paper, and Chris Chambers bounces it before he doesn't even get to referees. You know, Chris Chambers is a tough man, and he says. Oh well, you know, you, your power analysis is up the creek. Go away. And I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not. I'm relatively new to power analysis, and and I we we weren't quite clear what we were doing, so we had to go away and find out how to do it and work out that we needed more participants than anybody had ever had in the entire universe of ERP research. <laughs> and um, <laughs> oh, so God. we then. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. So, but this was Hannah, my student, was great. She was she was up for it. So she said, "Right, I'm just going to test loads and loads of people." So we write it again and we send it back to Chris. And Chris says, "Right, you're going to get. We'll send it out to reviewers." Um, oh no, no. I think at that point he said, "This is overambitious. You're trying to do far too many things in one study. Cut it down. Cut it down." So we cut it down. So then we get as far as getting to reviewers, and of course the reviewers then say. Ah, you haven't control for this, you haven't control for that, you haven't control for the other. Which, of course, with hindsight is incredibly useful because you want to be told that before you run the study, not Mm. after you've done the study. And this was a a phenomenon I hadn't ever worked with before. So I, you know, wasn't particularly good as a supervisor. So um, we have, you know, the controls included things like measuring EMG as we ran the experiment, which I had never done in my life. Mm. So I had to sort of run down the corridor and say to my mate, you know, who does EMG, how the hell do we measure EMG? And we had to measure EMG 
And this all took, you know, this poor woman is doing her doctorate and needs has got is on a relatively short term, you know, time scale with funding about to run out. So she's getting a bit apprehensive. But we, in the end, we measured EMG and we had to do some other controls. Um, and we, she finished. She tested. <laughs> they wanted us to have this control that allowed us to drop people who were not attending to these incredibly boring stimuli. And about a third of the Oxford students she tested were not attending to the <laughs> stimuli. So she tested a oh, total thanks, of Oxford. 99 people, I think, to get 64 <laughs> people. <laughs> oh. 99 people in an ERP study. Oh, and then the my, other, my heart the goes the out to your students. The was with the EMG because apparently you get these sweaty rugby players that you have to chuck out because <laughs> their EMGs are all over the place. So it, yeah, it was it was a probably. big effort. But, of course, the brilliant thing was, at the end, she uh, wrote it up. We had it more or less written up. We didn't have to do very much. We just described what we'd done. And um, then uh, one of the reviewers said, well, this is all very nice and good, but it would be incredibly nice if you also would do some source localization on this because it would be so interesting to localize a source. <sighs> and I knew from previous experience I vaguely could remember how to do that. I'd done it before, and then I knew I had a zillion other things. Hannah was leaving to take a job somewhere else, and um, so I thought, yeah, I could do that, but really, you know. So we just wrote back and said, we've deposited the data. If you would like to do the source localization, there it is. <laughs> and Chris, nice. of course, said, well, yeah, that's fair enough. They hadn't asked for that before, you know. Yeah, so, you can't you can't change things yeah, around yeah, yeah. with the I stage mean, we two. Could have, we could have thought we would do it you know it wasn't a stupid idea but it was just this is i think how a lot of studies which don't get pre-registered get killed and never see the light of day because the referees have a bright idea something it would be nice to do meanwhile the postdocs sort of gone sailing or taken up another job or you know all sorts of things disappeared the pi is busy with other things and i think there's a huge waste of stuff so which i think Registered reports is very, very good, not just from improving the science, which it certainly did in this case, but it just avoids all the waste of things that never see the light of day because they hit referee, you know, objections uh, late. That's a yeah. That's a basically you can't you can't backtrack on what you've said is an adequate amount of work. You've already pre-agreed to do it, so they can make suggestions. Why don't you try some source localization? But you're under no obligation to. Open up Brain Vision Analyzer and, and 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 rip through it and try to figure out what's going on. Um, you can just say, yeah, that doesn't. Well, we've we've already done the we've already done the unknowable part of of this, and now we're uh, now we're on a schedule. But actually, seriously, too. I mean, though we we said it with a sort of slight sense of yours. I mean, there, there was a sense of. Um, <laughs> You know, um, this wasn't a stupid thing to do, and somebody can do it. I mean, the data's there. You know, so there's it's a it's a suggestion that it will be out there because the referee, you know, reports are there. So, yeah, I wonder if there's a a, a place for an outlet for something like that, as a, a journal of reanalysis or something, where you you take a data set that that that's that good, and obviously if it's enormous and it's carefully collected and it's that well controlled, it's a good solid data set. Um, I wonder if there's a way to register like homeless analyses like that for 
other people to do them well, I, I, because I that s- happens that happens with our stuff all the time there's plenty there's there's so much that's left on the table when people have got focused questions from other physiological signals and then they just leave yeah, it in a heap yeah yeah and i think you know i mean it could be good training material i guess for students and so on as well now you, you mentioned um you mentioned before that for that particular registered report you deposited your data uh, what's what's and I've I've seen you've this is something that you regularly do with a lot of your papers. But uh, what's your experience been with this? Because a lot of people are really hesitant to do this. Like, forget about all the assuming that um all the privacy issues issues are taken care of. Uh, people are still really really hesitant to deposit their data. So I was wondering what your experience with that has been. Well, I think there are there are a number of different issues. Um, and I have uh I have one hesitancy about some sorts of data. Depositation is that the word? Deposit anyway, whatever. Um, which is, you know, people can come along behind you and p hack, and I think that's interesting. We worry about p hacking for the researchers who get the original data, but you can have a risk, and this is more likely with big sort of you know epidemiological data sets that somebody can dive in, and if they're allowed completely unconstrained access to it. They can snoop around and find what they want. And the best example of that I know of is somebody who went into some data from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control or whatever, big data set, and managed to find that if you took children who were black boys vaccinated in a particular period attending a particular nursery, there was a link between autism and you know vaccination. And it was clearly forking paths, but it created havoc. And, you know, it's a story that once it's out there, you can't put it back in the box. So that is something that I see as a, as a concern that one for certain types of data has to worry about. I think our ERP data, I mean, I don't think, you know, anybody wants to be nerdy enough to try and pee hack their way through that. <laughs> uh, I, d- I doubt it's a risk. Um, the other thing, though, that is, of course, the concern is that, you know, there's bound to be problems with it. Um, and I have deposited data and very, very shortly before depositing it, found um, that uh, there were errors in it. And, you know, if that happens, then you really are, you know, sort of feeling very vulnerable. But then I think what I've learned, and and when I blogged about that, what happened was that um, actually some people from sort of computational sciences commented on it and said, of course there's errors in it. There's always errors in it. You know, that's why you put it out there so people will find them. That's what computing people do all the time. You know, there's this sort of, and that really made my attitude much more relaxed about it. Huh. That's uh, that's almost reverse to the sort of attitude that we have in the uh, in the biomedical sciences. Yeah, where you think it's going to be, you know, like career destroying to if somebody finds that there is an error in your data. Um, but I think, I mean, I ha- don't think I've ever had a data set where it hasn't had errors in it, and I'm I'm trying. I don't have enough time, but I'm uh, I'm trying to go back in time through old data sets and put them up online. Um, nice. and you know reanalyze them and every time there's a sense of will I actually get the result that I published you know <laughs> I mean you know, in the old days we were much more cavalier I didn't check and check and check the thing about ma- putting it all up and making it open is you, god you check it you check it over oh. and over and over but that's good right so that's how science should yeah. be yeah that, that's, that's been what, my that's what, that's what Dan does yeah <laughs> he crinkles up his little forehead and he goes and he goes hunting He's that's been about my, that several times. That's been my exact experience. So many times uh, I'll, I'll check that and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to post this, but just double-checking my R script, 
um, sending it to colleagues to make sure they can do it. And um, I almost always find something, not, not, not huge errors, but small enough errors that would be potentially embarrassing. So, I think that alone is, uh, is a huge benefit of actually doing these things and, and depositing your data sets. Uh, but, uh, but speaking of, um, of, of errors in, in research, I think one of the most uh, common, when it, when it comes to questionable research practices, one of the most common defenses that we see when people are doing stuff and they're trying to defend other people who are up against it is, uh, is why are you singling out this person? Everyone is doing it. And uh, I think we've most recently seen this with um, when it comes to uh, Robert Sternberg. A lot of people have come to his defense. Um, There's Robert Sternberg, who recently stepped down as the um, editor of Perspectives of Psychological Science uh, for, for questionable citation practices. Um, but I, w- I wanted to hear what you think about this sort of everyone is doing it defense and uh, w- what sort of response you have to this, to this type of argument. Well, I don't think they should be doing it. <laughs> it's very simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, that clears that up. Next question. <laughs> and I particularly don't think they should be doing it if they're in a position that he's in. And so I did blog about this because, you know, I'm, I felt, you know, it's one thing for, you know, some little nobody in the middle of nowhere to be to being a bit dodgy and trying to embellish their CV in dodgy ways. But, I mean, he's supposed to be a role model. He's supposed to be a sort of leader in the field. And... That is really bad because it, that is so corrupting if, if it is seen as normative because it's okay for somebody like him to do it. Um, that does just create a cynicism and a sort of have a really corrupting influence, I think, on the entire field. So I, I feel quite strongly that he shouldn't do it. But at the same time, you know, I don't think he should be hung, drawn and quartered for it. I don't think, you know, it's it's the worst sin in the world or anything, but I think it, it should be you know, made clear that it's just not acceptable. And, you know, he can then, I mean, the thing is, the other thing that was funny about that was this sort of pushback from some of his friends sort of defending him. Um, They were just making it worse. Everybody who starts saying, oh, it's not really so bad. Why are you being horrible to this man? And we're going to give you, and the legal threats are hilarious. I mean, you you just keep it in the air. You keep people talking about it. And there is one basic thing to do when you, you know, if you're caught doing something wrong, it's quite simple what you do is you apologize sincerely. Uh, you don't make excuses. You just say, yeah, okay, I screwed up. I shouldn't have done that. And then you go away for a bit and you hide and you keep lie low and it goes away. Nobody's talking about it two weeks later. But if you start sort of doing all this, oh, you know, it was okay. And why are you horrible people getting it? You start a battle which just goes on and on and on. So I think... Um, his uh, his supporters haven't helped him at all by sort of coming up with these sorts of arguments. Mm, we've had a, a few moments where if you, you if you ask for someone's data because you find something that's suspicious, yes, and you ask for the data and they say, "What do you want this for? Who is your primary supervisor? <laughs> do you have enough teeth to be requesting numbers from me, you bloody little poor person?" Then your your back goes up immediately and you think, what is this person hiding? Why are they so invested in this? I just wanted to see if there were any sevens. I mean, it wasn't even a thing. <laughs> and now, now we're having a discussion about it and I'm talking to people and they've found something else and now I'm trying to get the journal involved and... Yeah. Um, no, I, I had this funny experience. That, so we did a paper where we were looking at, um, I just wanted to do this because I, I was getting very fed up with all these neurogenetic papers where they, like I said earlier, they were sort of doing basic neuroscience and then just 
adding a few uh, genetic variants into the mix without really understanding the genetics. And I wanted to just sort of look at the errors that you got in that sort of field. So I was sort of, in a sense, error hunting. But at the same time, I didn't want to name and shame. I just sort of wanted to document what was going on in a, in a sort of polite way as possible. Um, but it meant that for every study we had, we did a little synopsis of what we thought they'd found and what the effect size was. And, you know, there, there, was, a, there was just a sort of single, single sheet with a list of things that we were evaluating, like sample size, power, effect, you know, effect size and things like that. And everybody who study was featured, we sent this to and just said, could you just check we've got this right? And there were some people who said, no, you didn't get it right. And it was good. You know, they corrected us. But otherwise, the world divided into three people. The ones that never respond ever to this sort of query. Mm. The ones that respond and say, yeah, fine, and check it and give you a response. And then there you get the ones, why do you want to know this? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? You know, what, what, and, and really suspiciously. And of course, you immediately think these people are dodgy. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> well, that was yeah, about, this is the... probably about half of them. And they were not being singled out for being dodgy. This was just a series of papers that met certain criteria. Um, but we were then interested in whether the methods were up to scratch, but we hadn't singled them out because we thought they weren't. <laughs> right. It was just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. We had exactly the same experience with the, the Grimm paper where we found inconsistencies, but there's, there's no, A, we could have got the inconsistency wrong and we did in some cases. B, there's generally a really benign explanation for it like there were some items missing from the next thing so the end starts out as 40 and then it turns into 37 and neither of them were significant anyway it's just that the numbers don't precisely match but you still have people going whoa i want you to sign an agreement before you say anything about it <laughs> Or just yeah, or the 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 ghosting I think was a little bit more common for us, um, partially because if they'd googled us, they would have found some of the other work that we've done. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it comes across as not sort of vexatious as much as like dangerous somehow. I don't know. People just they'd said that we we have a a, a lot of tropes about openness and honesty and what we expect from each other and scientists should welcome humiliation and they don't always pan out do they yeah <laughs> yeah no but i think you know and you've written uh, james about um the uh you know how it's, it's difficult because then the rest of the world starts writing to you saying i mean i've had a bit of that you know they write to you and say oh you know here's this person we think they're a bit dodgy will you sort of go and sort it out and you sort of think what <laughs> you know my life is busy and it's quite stressful doing this sort of stuff it's interpersonally difficult um but i do try pretty hard to you know see it from the point of view of the other person just because i think you know a lot of people may be careless or whatever and you know make mistakes but if somebody starts to really you know try and avoid you or not respond to a serious I mean I'm just astonished I've had people who've just not responded to quite serious queries about their work um, and I just can't understand how people could just think oh it's okay to let that go you know I mean it's it's um, and it, it, you just do assume that they're doing that because they've got something to hide at the yeah, very it's, least it's hard it's hard to avoid that conclusion I think for some people it's just the fact they can't pause 
the words in the first instance. They're like, you, you want what from me? It's like you've walked into a delicatessen and asked for an elephant sandwich. <laughs> and they go, you, you what? We, uh, I, sorry, this is, uh, we've got, we've got Devon. No, 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 that's not what I want. It's just not something that it, it's so, it, it's a foreign experience to a lot of people I think to a also, really yeah, weird yeah, degree. The, the, and, and I think there is a, a very strange sense of mindset that you get into, which I've been into with my own papers where it's such a hassle getting something published. So, you know, you gather the data that takes, that may take years, you write it up, you analyze it, you submit it, you get pissed about by referees. And so it's such a long haul that when it actually appears in print, you have this sense, it's done. I can put that one to bed, Mm. put it away, and then somebody like you pops up and says, hello. (laughs) I want to look at your data again. Even even in that tone of voice. (laughs) Yeah. So I have some I have some degree of empathy for that reaction, but uh, you know it's it's clearly um, oh, yeah, everybody sure. does it, but it's not the right reaction. It's not the grown up reaction. So um, and it's and in a sense, it's partly a reaction that you get pre- precisely because our publication system is so messed up that it is like you know we we are producing these gobbits of research that take such a long time, each one to sort of gestate and then excrete it and out it goes that um, we don't think, you know, you can almost lose the sense of doing science in doing that because you just get so fixated on the creating the thing, getting the paper in the good journal sort of thing. Yeah. That's another argument in favor of open open data. I like never have this conversation ever again. Just uh, stick it out into the world and uh, you know, let the let the world deal with yeah, it. If exactly. someone's got a problem exactly. with it, they can find it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean I'm look. just so overjoyed Love these it. days when I do find a paper where things are open and I get, you know, increasingly irritated when, when it's not. Um because I've had the experience now of reviewing things for journals where they insist on it being available. And then going back to the sort of old system where they've got a little sentence at the end saying data's available on a reasonable request or something, and you think, come on, you know. Yeah. What about unreasonable requests? That's yeah. that available for unreasonable requests. Well, someone starts you, an email with, oh, listen to me, you hairy slime ball. Give us your goddamn numbers. Yeah, I would probably respond better to that. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think, I think when they put reasonable, they're thinking exactly of people like you as the people mm-hmm. who are not reasonable, who they're not going to respond to the request. Uh, I always I find that very funny because I've had plenty of in obviously you've got some crossover with physiological measurement and it's reasonably common for people to ask other people for signals especially if they're trying to build an algorithm or do machine learning stuff or they're trying to familiarize themselves with uh, a multi-use tool that might do filtering or sectioning or something like that so people do trade data sets and I am way more polite than the people who write to me asking for data. So the the idea that I'm making unreasonable requests hurts my feelings a bit. I should really be turning up people's inboxes going, oh, I give us your numbers. Get on with it. Oh, dear. Yes. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be back soon. If you enjoy listening to Everything Hurts, the best way to support us is to spread the word on social media. Our Twitter handle is Hurts Podcast, and you can find us on Facebook by searching Everything Hurts Podcast. That's H-E-R-T-Z. If you have any comments or suggestions, please let us know. Our Twitter and Facebook inboxes are open. 
You can also email us at everythinghurtspodcast at gmail.com. That's everythinghurtspodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. We are chatting with Dorothy Bishop, who you can find on Twitter at DVB. That's D-E-E-V-Y-B-E-E. And you can also find her blog on all things academia at dvb.blogspot.com. Now, Dorothy, as well as publishing several books on developmental language disorders, you've also published a series of crime novels. Oh, I und- didn't realize you knew about that. <laughs> yeah, I saw that pop up on, on oh, Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I saw it pop up on Twitter, I think yeah, sometime last year. There's a promotion on Twitter, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's there. It's, uh, it's, uh, what I found interesting, they're actually set in Fremantle in, yes. in, in Western yes. Australia. Oh, yes, I'm a Fremantle addict, yeah. It's, ve- it's very nice there. And uh, we actually have a number of uh, Western Australian listeners. I think I saw on, on, on Hertz Twitter that a lecturer somewhere in Western Australia has assigned the show as, uh, as recommended listening. So, there's a whole bunch of students who, who have been forced <laughs> to listen to, to James and I. So, ha- hi. Um, now, wow. The, and that I, is brave. That's that 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 that, that that's very brave. And um, I saw the uh, the title of your latest book is the the case of the threatening tweets. Yes. which um, it's very very um, very timely at the moment. Exactly. Well, I like to be topical. I like to be topical. It's extremely topical. <laughs> now, it must be a very very short book. Yeah. <laughs> A- academia is um, it's insanely competitive, and uh, it hardly leaves room for any other pursuits, uh, especially if you have a young family, which I'm which I'm finding out at the moment with a, with a three month old baby. So I was wondering, how do you how do you carve out time for for these non academic pursuits, and and why do you think this uh, this sort of stuff's important? Yeah, well, I don't have a three year old, which I think uh, is. <laughs> I don't. Ha- I just have a husband who's retired and likes to cook for me, so that's good. Um, but. Uh, no, it, I mean it, it came about. It came about very strangely. The novel writing, so I did not think of myself as a novel writer. Um, but I was in Fremantle. I love Fremantle. I go. I, I was spending a lot of time at the University of Western Australia at one point. Um, basically, we were escaping the British winter, um, and we had collaborations, both my husband and myself. So. Um, and I remember sitting in Fremantle and looking around and thinking this would be a really good spot for a crime novel, to set a crime novel, just because it's such got such a diverse collection of people, basically. You know, you've got the sort of hippies and you've mm. got the Italians on the docks and you've got the cruise people. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's an interesting place. Um, and I thought no more about it because I didn't think I was into novel writing until we got back to Britain where we came from like 30 degrees Fremantle to freezing weather in Britain. And in fact, we, it was one of the big snows where you couldn't actually open your front door because there was all this snow. Oof. And I was jet lagged. So I was awake in the middle of the night. I didn't want to work. Um, I really didn't feel like working at all. My brain was in, you know, no gear to work. So I just started sort of thinking I'll try and write this novel that I thought would be a good novel to write. And um, I found I enjoyed it because it is the antithesis of academic writing. Because you can, you just make mm. stuff up. And you, you know, I mean, it's just what, there's no constraints. You can do what you like. So you're sort of writing away and your heroine gets in a tricky situation and you can't work a way out of it. So you just sort of backtrack, change the plot, kill somebody off, you know. So, um, but I don't, I mean, I, I, I enjoy making up plots and I, I quite enjoy weaving in science themes or sort of themes about, I mean, the, the threatening tweets is all about the sort of 
it's, it, it is about the sort of things that happening currently with fake news and the rest of it and with people weaponizing Twitter and, you know, going after people, scientists who views they don't like. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's, um, it's just fun to do it. But I don't regard myself as a great novelist, but I've got a small following of people who seem to like it. But I think it's, it's the sort of not quite chick lit, it's more like sort of crone lit, so that most mm. of the people that like it are sort of women of a certain age, because the heroine, <laughs> the heroine is a sort of 60-year-old, sort of bumbling Australian woman who tends to get tends to not be taken seriously because she sort of looks as if she's not very serious, and yet she's got a very piercing mind. It's a bit like Miss Marple, but in Australia. If you know about Miss Marple, you probably, that reference probably. Isn't your cat named Miss Marple, James? What? Didn't you, you name one of your... Ben? Didn't you name one of your cats Miss Marble? Dan? Dan, you, you, you have to get some more sleep, mate. Either that or you've got a serious unstated oxy addiction. Why would I have a cat called Miss Marble? I, I swore you did. I, I'm, this, this, this is what happens I with... Think uh, you're, I think you're slowly cracking up. I think you've, 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 you've mixed up your psych meds with your kid's bloody uh, junior multivitamin. So what, uh, what what are your cats called? How many cats have you got? Your cats are a common reference in your tweets. Oh, I'm I'm very I'm very fond of cats. Um, I've only got one cat, but we uh we volunteer at a cat shelter, so um I take I take photos of them and show people. Ah. and it's uh, there's there is actually a there is actually a the quiet benefit to that, which is the sort of understated part, is that we've actually adopted two of the cats from the shelter to different people that we know. And part of that is because they see the silly photos and, you know, and you people sort of get to know them because obviously the best way to, to, to do that is, uh, you know, you can't just say, oh, come to the cat shelter, it'll be a good time. But you get a photo of one and you go, this is clear. She likes treats and she scratched me behind the knee and she's an arsehole. But um, that's obviously a problem. So you take her off her hands. It'll be great. Ah, so you're a middleman for the cat shelter. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, a cat, I'm a cat dealer. <laughs> <laughs> I, have one, I have one cat who's been on the show lots, who's Mr. Licorice. And I had a, a cat before that in Sydney. Uh, his name was Badger, who was a nine-kilo feral cat that was found in a burned-out car on a farm. And wow. I had a cat for 20 years when I was a kid. Right. Um, so I've had, I've had a cat at every point in time since I was five. Right. Okay. Now, yeah. But not one called Miss Marple. <laughs> <laughs> no, not one called Miss Marple. Now, now, you ha- now you have to do that, James. Now you have to do that. Now, speaking I of... Think, um, I'll, yeah, I'll, sorry, I'll we're rename, digressing. I'll we rename one at the home. No, that's of, fine. That's what you're supposed to. <laughs> speaking, of, um, speaking of cats, I want to talk about YouTube. Now, Dorothy, you've got an excellent YouTube channel about um, raising awareness for oh, developmental yes. language disorders, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um now, there's there's several ways that people that scientists can go about communicating science uh, about communicating science. So, why did you choose video? Well, um, yeah, again, there's all these things. There's always a long story, but essentially, this goes back to me being fed up that I was working on a condition that nobody had ever heard of, and thinking we've got to raise awareness, and getting together with some colleagues that thought, yeah, that's a good idea. But my initial idea was that I would sort of do 
a video about developmental language disorders that would be like one of my lectures for the sort of general public, which would last about 20 minutes, and I would explain everything we knew about developmental language disorders. Unfortunately, I was stopped by this, uh, in this idea, by the fact that a friend of a friend who was involved in all of this is a public relations person, a sort of quite high-powered agency, who wanted to do some pro bono work for us to help us. And she just laughed and said, you know, you do realize that nobody listens to videos for more than three minutes these days. You cannot give a 20-minute talk about developmental language disorder. Nobody will take any notice. So she said, um, and I just sort of was shocked and horrified and said, there's no way you can say anything sensible or meaningful in three minutes. And she said, you know, you'd be surprised what you can do. So we we worked out that we should go for these shorter videos. Um <clears throat> And they're a sort of mixture. I mean, the, the more glitzy ones are professionally made are more sort of almost advertorials. But there are other ones that she said, if you, if you, Dorothy, if you're really burning to do the sort of evidence-based stuff, you can, you know, just point a camera at yourself and be a talking head and people will listen to it. And But the thing you have to do, I found, is it, it's it's like, a trailer for a film you know you give the highlights and then I'm only happy if I can also link it to some slides and then to some references so that the whole trail back to the evidence is there because otherwise you know you feel you're no better than people that are just sort of spouting a load of stuff how, how do people know that what you're saying has got any evidence behind it but I find that a really nice model that you give you know so you feel probably 90% of people will just see you talk for three minutes saying x y and z and then a few of them will go on and want to sort of follow up you know what's the evidence behind that and they'll look at the slides and then the real nerds will go to the reference list and read the actual articles behind it but you have the whole trail mm. there um, and it seems to me that that works quite well and I got quite addicted to doing it it's it's a really it's a really nifty way of actually um, of communicating science. I know um, someone else um, that's doing really well is uh, Andrew Whitehouse. Yeah, oh, is um, he? He's my ex um, PhD, uh, not PhD. He was a postdoc with me. Oh, was he? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. I've uh, I did a, I did a paper with him uh, last year or two. Um, but he he's doing some fantastic stuff. I think it's called Sixty Second Science. Um, and he's posting it on, on, on YouTube and on Facebook and it's getting incredible amount. Yeah, it's, oh, it's amazing. It's, he's kept quiet check about it out. that. I will check it out because he's, I mean, he's already been very, in, you know, interested in communicating through things like the conversation and, and sort of, pub, you know, generally, he's very good at that sort of public engagement. I didn't know he'd been doing that. Ah, I should check it out. It's, and, and I think a lot of scientists seem to be a bit hesitant about doing the whole talking head thing. I think some people can be a bit reticent because they're like, oh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it about me. What do you think about all that? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it depends on the area you're in. But I mean, if you're in an area like mine, which is a complete Cinderella subject, nobody's ever heard of it, you've got to do something to get the message out there. And, um, you know, so I, I just really got, I mean, I always tell my taxi driver story that, you know, you sit in a taxi and they say, what do you work on? If they've got a conversational taxi driver and you say, developmental language disorder. And they say, what's that? And whereas if you say to them, <laughs> I work on autism, and I, you ended up saying, it's a bit like autism, it's a bit like dyslexia. And then they would understand because they knew about those and they know somebody who had it or whatever. Why had they never heard of developmental language disorder? So we're really trying to put it on the map and get people a bit more aware of it. And so I didn't sort of feel... Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't feel I could have the luxury of sort of holding back and saying, oh, no, I can't face doing that. I mean, the big the big problem for me is not so much that potential sort of being perceived as self-promotional so much as just time. I mean, you know, time is always the big mm. 
um, limit that you, you have to, and the older you get, the more you're very conscious you've got a limited amount left and you want to spend it wisely. So you don't want to sort of waste it. But I think, um, I, I used to think when I started in the field that if I did a bit of research and I published a paper showing something that, you know, the general world out there would know about it. And then you realize absolutely not. And that the policymakers <laughs> and the practitioners are all going on their own merry way, taking absolutely no notice. Um, so that, uh, as an example, I mean, there's not just me, but lots of people have done studies showing that it's really hard to predict at the age of two which children have got language problems. So you might be a very late talker and you might be going on to be absolutely fine. So until we can predict it a bit better, it's probably not a good idea to put tons and tons of resources into two-year-olds because you're ending up putting your scarce resources into kids who are probably going to get better anyway. An awful lot of them do. What happens is that people say, let's treat all these two-year-olds. And of course, they all get better and they think, that was a really effective treatment because they all get better. Not realising <laughs> that... Not realising they didn't have the disorder in the first place. Oh, man. So, I mean, and, and you know, I'm, you know, it, it's incredibly important that if you do have a two-year-old that you're keeping tabs on them and, and you know, monitoring them and so on. But I, I look like I'm the big nasty lady because I keep coming in and saying, is all this early intervention really the best way of spending our scarce resources? Because a lot of these kids are going to do just fine with no intervention at all. Um, and that has been known for what? you know, since the 1980s. Uh, I mean, there's more and more and more studies that shore it up, but it's just a finding that... Um, at that age, it's too early to predict who's not who's okay and who's just a bit slow to get going and is going to take off like a rocket. So it's things like that that made me realise that you know I actually have to put it out there. So that's you know I sometimes write bits about that in blogs and I put it on the videos because those things get looked at by a different audience. But it's very clear that people do not read the academic papers, um, and there's, there's a whole load of other instances like that that in my field where I feel surely you know that we've already demonstrated this, but you know people just are sort of ignoring it. And I guess a lot, you know you don't realise as an academic how many people just don't read the academic literature. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> How many <laughs> academics don't read the academic literature? Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. There's that as well. But yeah. ah, I've been suffering through some of this in the, the last few days, trying to trying to trying to quickly sum up forty years worth of stuff and finding things that I really liked and being surprised by the fact that they have seven citations since 1981, which just seems sort of yeah, they should have been should have been flashier. Should have had more parts. Yeah, well, this is, yeah. I mean, it is a problem because, I mean, I think this is perhaps a real difference between, you know, there are cultural differences. And I think Australians and Brits are probably more alike in this, in that you don't like people who go around being self-promotional. And the last thing you want is this, um, you know, when your university starts, oh, they, yeah, they come along and say, how to use Twitter. And their idea of Twitter is that you use it to promote <laughs> your papers. And I keep saying, no, people who promote their papers on Twitter, nobody will follow them because it's really boring having people who promote their papers on Twitter. So you don't, you know, you've got to be careful in how you promote things. But the interesting thing is certainly for the stuff I do, you discover there's loads of people who are really thirsty for this stuff and want this information if you can put it out in a format that they can, you know, interact with it and find it. Yeah, for sure. It's good fun to have a kind of a coordinated media strategy sense when it, it came to this. I got to do a bit of that recently, which was great fun with this Goosebumps thing. 
I thought very carefully about how I'm going to do it and basically turn the preprint into the recruiting tool for people who are going to eventually go in the next study. It started out with 30 rare people, and then on the back of everything that went together, as I'm talking to journalists, you know, I make sure you include my contact details so anyone who is, fits the bill can come back to me on the other side. So we went from 30 people that took a few months to find to more than 100 turning up sort of by themselves in, in my inbox. Hi, I can do that. How are you? Yeah, there's a, a, <clears throat> I've had the same experience here with... Um, uh, the the kind of university management. You know, there's there's someone in a room somewhere who had a bright idea, and it's that you should you should go out and promote yourself. It's good for you, and it's good for the university. And it's sort of they 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 think that it's a product. They think it's something that represents a value proposition to other people, rather than something that's really difficult to engage with, even on a basic level, and is incredibly specialized. And you can't just sort of insert it in people. It's not half a dozen bagels for half price. It's you know it's complex concepts and ideas, and you're requiring serious time investments from serious people if they're going to pay attention. Yeah, I hope there's university media people listening to this. You're all hacks, and um, you shouldn't be employed. <laughs> now, before we um before we finish up, we always like to ask our guests uh, some questions uh, about their career. So we wanted to ask you, Dorothy, uh, what's one book or article that you think everyone should read? Yeah, I, I it's an interesting question. I, I've got so many I could choose from, but the one that at the moment is at the forefront of my consciousness is a book by a woman called Naomi Oreskes called Merchants of Doubt. And this is it's like almost like a novel. I don't know if you've come across it, but she is she's a fascinating woman because she started as a miner a mining engineer or something in in Australia. She worked and but she's become a historian of science, but she's basically very interested in climate denial. And she, in the in she was documenting the history of how this all came about and notice these huge similarities with um, the campaigns against, you know, the tobacco lobby sort of denying that smoking was a problem and people denying that acid rain was a problem and actually found it was the yeah. same people, some of the same very senior people who were behind all of these, what it's called merchants of doubt, sort of casting doubt on stuff. And, but then what I love about it is that she took it a step further because instead of just saying, oh, aren't there all these evil people doing all these different things, she's got very interested in why, you know, what was motivating them to behave this way and started doing, look, you know, interviewing people and trying to work out what it was. And it all comes down to very much a sense that the people that are climate denialists and so on, they, they really tend to not want people interfering. It's this sort of libertarian notion, you know, that they, they don't like the idea of anybody interfering with them and they don't like the idea of, of the state taking control and the nanny state sort of making you behave one way rather than another. Um, but this book is just like, you read through it and it's it sort of documents all this stuff. And so it's it's great because it's a good read but it's also just taught me so much stuff that I didn't know, but that was of enormous importance in sort of understanding what's going on at the moment with a lot of the sort of fake news and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, the motivated reasoning. And cast, casting it. doubt have you, on Have stuff. you seen the film? No, I haven't. No. No, that would be good. It's uh, good. Yeah, they've yeah they've got they've they've got a 
a variety of interviews with um a lot of people I think most people wouldn't recognize but there's a uh, Climatologists have been threatened, and uh, Michael Shermer, the skeptic guy, is in it. And uh, there's a few sort of slimy tobacco characters. It's a good film. Um, I assume that it's reasonably uh, congruent to the book, but I yeah, haven't read the book. It probably would be. The, the book is, I mean, funnily enough, I thought about this because today we had a journal club where we were discussing Dan Gilbert et al., criticism of Brian Nozick's reproducibility project. and Oh, uh, yeah, the re- reproducibility is uh, not statistically indistinct from 100%. That's right. That, that, that's the one. And we were, we were going through the logic, if you can call it that, of the arguments that he was putting forward. And I realized this is part of the same thing, because I then looked at who is citing Gilbert. So I, I, I checked a lot of the papers that were then citing him, ah, and they were nearly all citing this paper um, without clearly understanding the arguments, but they just knew that Gilbert had raised objections to Nozick. So it was very like the Merchants of Doubt. It was like what they'd done is they'd injected into the world a sense that something was not quite right with that project. Um, and, you know, little anecdotal snippets about there were these funny things about it. And I thought, this is just like hmm. the Merchants of Doubt. You know, it's sort of let's have doubt about Nozick's big project. Um, and that was exactly how it had been taken up by most people. It was just really funny reading the articles that cited it because they would all say, Nozick and colleagues have shown blood and blood. And then they'd say, brackets, but see Gilbert et al. You know, they clearly didn't understand yeah. the argument. They didn't evaluate it as good or bad. But it was just sort of like... We don't want to just say this is fine because there is this other person who thinks, you know. And uh, so I found that rather a fascinating parallel. That is, uh, yeah, I th- a lot of people have read that paper. Obviously, a lot of people are throwing a lot of rocks at that paper because it is of uh, questionable veracity. But no one has ever told me before what all the people citing it were doing. That <laughs> is really interesting. I might blog I think about Dan, that if I Dan and I have... Dan, Dan and I have both been that paper where it says, but see something. Yeah. It's like a, a, a complaint that we've made about something that is entirely legitimate. And it means that, yeah, people people do that, uh, especially with uh, heart rate research. People do that where they say, we use this method and the method is dreadful. Uh, see, uh, see Dan or myself in some capacity. But, you know, I mean, yeah, they raised <laughs> massive objections, but uh, we, we did it anyway. So, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the, 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 the but see is a, a powerful, um, a powerful kind of impetus to ignore the, the substance of it. So if it agrees with you, you can throw it in. If it doesn't agree with you, you've got cover to say, oh, we paid attention to all the problems and then we did it anyway. <laughs> the, uh, the, the second thing I wanted to yes. ask you, Dorothy, was uh, what have you changed your mind about in the last few years? Ooh, um, I think probably the thing I mentioned earlier, this... Um, this business about, you know, open data not being 100% a good thing because you have to, you know, it's got these potential unintended consequences that we really have to be careful about. Because, and of course, that's also now coming up mm. very much with it being weaponized by the, um, you know, um, Scott Pruitt with the EPA and the rest of it sort of now 
you know that that sort oh, of yeah. if you haven't got open data therefore we're not going to take any notice of anything you've ever said i mean i think there's always the forces of darkness marshaled there who are going to try and use and some of most of them fortunately uh, the impression i get is that most of them are just not very clever and not very good at doing this but if you get a clever person behind trying to sort of you know get the better of you and distort science or use science for its own evil ends um Thing, bad things can happen and I think um, but the the thing that I think we're most at risk of is people just saying oh yeah there's all this wonderful open data and then diving into it and using it to make their own argument for some you know for anti-vax or whatever I think there is already that's already happened and presumably it could happen with climate science too so my own view and I've, I've thought about this long and hard is is that for certain sorts of data sets you know it may be that you just should require those who want to access the data to pre-register what they're going to do with it um, so that you they're not allowed to just sort of snoop around in it and do whatever they want. But that, So that's, I think, a sort of more nuanced view than I had perhaps 10 years ago. Yeah, definitely, yeah, for sure. Um, I've, you're, you're convincing me during the course of this conversation because um, we, we obviously have a bias towards whatever data we deal with on a day-to-day level is how you imagine data typically exists. So you, you, you don't cast your mind into all of the contexts in which data could be given away and what that might actually mean. So It's yeah. just there are very nasty people out there who will want to misuse it and distort it in, in various ways. And so it is, it is just important to not be naive about it, I think. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. Like a, well, so one really argument to that is, of course, you can you can wait until they produce whatever kind of rubbish and then push back against it. But again, what we're going to now call the Gilbert effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the moment the moment it's out there, the barrow will be pushed. The articles will be written, and uh, the you know people will jump on the consensus the same way they jumped on the data as an opportunity to promote a viewpoint that's not necessarily supported by the evidence. On that note, cool. we'll um, we'll finish up with the episode. Uh, Dorothy Bishop, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. <laughs>